Well, this morning we continue to learn from our sermon series called The Story, which is really God's story from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. And ever since we picked back up with this series after taking a short break during Advent and Christmas, we've been learning about the time period in history when there was a divided kingdom among God's people. You may remember that after the death of King Solomon, the United Kingdom split into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, and it was made up of 10 of the 12 tribes, and it started to be ruled with their first king named Jeroboam. Meanwhile, the southern kingdom of Judah was made up of the other two tribes, and they started out being ruled over a king by the name of Rehoboam. Scripture tells us that both of these kings did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and so they led their people to do evil as well. And last week we learned that in the midst of this division, this evil, this apostasy, God called prophets, messengers, to speak for God a word from God to God's people. And last week we learned that the prophets reminded the people that they were chosen by God to be holy, to be set apart, to be different from all the people around them, and that through their faithfulness to God, they were to show God's light to the nations around them who did not know the God of Israel. The prophets also called the people not to rebel against God, not to worship false gods, not to ignore God's commands. The prophets also told the people that if they continued on the path of disobedience that they were already on, that God would most surely bring judgment upon them. And we learned that what God wanted most of all from his people was for them to act with justice, to show kindness, and to walk humbly with God. In the year 732 B.C., Hosea became the very last king of the kingdom of Israel. Scripture tells us he did what was evil in God's eyes. But for about nine years, he avoided invasion by the larger nation of Assyria because he became a vassal to the Assyrian king. He paid tribute, lots of money to him, and so he held off their invasion. But one day he stopped paying the tribute, and instead he turned to the king, the pharaoh of Egypt, and he tried to strike a deal with them, an alliance with them, which ticked off the Assyrians. And so Assyria invaded Israel. The citizens were deported to, from the promised land into Assyria, and King Hosea himself was put into prison. 2 Kings 17, beginning in verse 17, describes what happened in this way. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshiped other gods, and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. 
The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshiped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. During the years of the divided kingdom, there were a total of 38 kings in all between both kingdoms. And out of that number, we're told from Scripture that only five were considered to be good kings. And what it means when the Bible says they were good kings is that they did what was pleasing to God. They followed God's commandments. All the rest of these kings, 33 of them, the majority of them, all did what was evil in the eyes of God. And so when the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians, you might just think that the southern kingdom of Judah might have sat up straight and taken notice of what was going on. You might think that they would have learned from their northern neighbor's mistakes, but they didn't. Things were bleak in both Israel and Judah. You see, Judah's own ignorance wasn't curbed by the fall of Israel to her enemies, and they still didn't listen to the words of the prophets who came to warn them. Some of the people went through the motion showing an outward kind of compliance to the law of God, but inward, they were far away from God. They hardly gave God a second thought. They didn't have a genuine faith in God, and they didn't give reverence to God either. They went through the motions. They went through the temple rituals, but as soon as they were done, it was right back out there to business as usual, according to their own self-centered desires. Their spiritual condition was in the pits. And because of this, as you can imagine, chaos reigned throughout the land. Injustice was everywhere, but everybody turned a blind eye to it. Prominent leaders perpetrated crimes against the weak and the marginalized. Their hands were covered with blood even as they prayed. King Uzziah was one of the kings of Judah during the time period when Israel was crashing and burning. He is known as a good king who basically did what was good in God's sight. His major failure was, it, was that he wasn't completely sold out for God. He wasn't all in for God. And because he wasn't all in, he didn't lead the people of his nation the way he should have. He failed to tear down all the places of worship on the high places where the pagan gods of the surrounding nations were worshipped. He didn't lead his people to be faithful to God. And so his people continued to break the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. But because Uzziah was faithful in some things, the Lord gave Judah some more time. You know, God doesn't want to punish his people. 
God wants his people to come to repentance, to turn back to him so that they might be saved. But that was not to be the case for Judah. King Uzziah had a long reign. He reigned for 52 years, but when he died, Judah fell into complete disarray. And it was at this time that God sent a prophet by the name of Isaiah to Jerusalem. My friends, the people were living in dark and desolate times. Sin was rampant. It was everywhere. And God gave Isaiah a vision. He gave him prophetic, a prophetic word of hope for the people of his day. And I believe for you and for me and for the people of our day as well. Isaiah's vision starts like this in chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him there were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see, in a time that was full of darkness, bleakness, and hopelessness, Isaiah saw a great God. This is a magnificent vision. It's one of my favorites in all of scripture. I mean, Isaiah catches a glimpse of God who is so big, so grand, so great that just the hem of God's garment fills the entire temple. And where is God seated? He's seated on his throne, isn't he? Unmovable, unshakable. He is exactly where the king of heaven always is. King Uzziah might be dead. His throne might be vacant. But the throne of heaven is filled with God. Six-winged heavenly beings called seraphs are flying all around God. And they are extolling God's holiness. The temple trembles. It shakes and it fills with smoke. I remember a long time ago, it's, I think it was 1997, when the Promise Keepers men's movement was kind of at the height, of the zenith of its popularity and so forth. I went with a gathering to a gathering that they held on the mall in Washington, D.C. It was called Stand in the Gap. Estimates vary on the size of the crowd that day, but probably somewhere between 600,000 and 800,000 men showed up. I wasn't a pastor at the time. I was part of a small church, but there was a large church in Beaver Creek, Ohio, <coughs> near my home in Dayton, that had chartered three buses. And so myself and a couple of friends uh, got spaces on those buses, and we drove all night on these Greyhound buses to Washington, D.C. And we arrived early, early in the morning. We parked on the edge of town out at the football stadium. And as you can imagine, mass transit, their metro system was overwhelmed. So we walked from the stadium down to the mall to the Capitol area with thousands of other men. It was the most surreal experience I've ever had. I'd never seen anything like it. I probably never will again. 
Well, the group that I was in was way, way back from the main stage. It was just this tiny speck at the Capitol end of the mall. But about every jumbotron that was available in the United States at that time had been sent to D.C. so that no matter where you were, you could watch what was happening on the main stage on this jumbotron. And I remember that almost the whole time there was this air of celebration, of jubilation, of cheering and supporting everything that was being said from that stage. And at one point, the speaker asked this question, what do you think would happen if God himself showed up today? And the crowd went wild. There was cheering and just amazing amounts of noise. And we said it would be like if if, uh, if if a winning touchdown had been scored about with our favorite team for the most important game of the year, we'd go wild. Or maybe we would hoist God up on our shoulders and carry him down the mall like a victory lap. And the speaker said, no. We would fall on our faces right there on the ground in repentance when face to face with the holiness of God Almighty. Because, my friends, that's the only response that is possible when sinful humans come face to face with the holiness of God. That's what happened to Isaiah. He cried out, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in a, among people with unclean lips. And yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. You see, during a time when the moral and spiritual decay of Judah was at its peak, or maybe at its depth, it was important for Isaiah to see just how great God is. Because you see, the power of God puts our problems in perspective, doesn't it? When God becomes bigger, our problems become smaller. When God increases, our trouble decreases. King David, in Psalm 34, put it this way. He says, magnify the Lord with me and exalt his name. Because you see, there's no problem that we can ever face that's too big for God to handle. Whether we have too many bills at the end of the month for the amount of money in our bank account, or whether change is happening all around us in our life way faster than we want it to, or whether disease or aging is taking its toll on our body, God meets us right there in the midst of all of these things. And so if our problem seems to be too big, it means that our view of God has become too small. I remember when my girls were little, they really liked to watch VeggieTales tapes. Does anyone else here remember VeggieTales? We had a whole bunch of those tapes. I remember in one of them, there was a character named Junior Asparagus, and he was afraid to go to bed at night. It was all dark in his room. And so Bob the tomato and Larry the cucumber, this is going to sound super weird if you don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> began to sing him this song. And it went, God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. Oh, God is bigger than the boogeyman, and he's watching out for you and me. 
I loved that song. My girls loved that song. Sometimes I wish there was an adult version of that song. You know what I mean? (laughs) It might go something like, oh, God is bigger than your mean old boss. He's bigger than your wallet or that deadline that you face. Oh, God is bigger than your mean old boss, and he's watching out for you and me. I don't know what fears you have. Maybe you can rewrite your own lyrics this afternoon that might help you. You see, Isaiah and his people were facing giant problems. But God was bigger. God met Isaiah when the nation was crumbling all around him. God trusted, Isaiah trusted in God and gave God his troubles. And my friends, that's what Jesus wants you and me to do as well. When you have a problem, bring it to Jesus. When you're facing trouble or change or seeming disaster, don't run from that problem. Run with that problem to Jesus. Because Jesus can help us overcome anything and everything that we face. And allowing Jesus to do that builds our faith and our trust in him. When the Lord called Isaiah to be a prophet to Judah, Isaiah responded in faith and he said, Here am I, send me. And because Isaiah focused on the greatness of God, he was able to do great things for God. And as God began to use Isaiah, Isaiah began to see and tell others about a great future. Now, don't get me wrong. Isaiah's job was not an easy one. His mission was hard. He had to tell the people of Judah who believed that they were blessed by God, that no, in fact, they were being disobedient to God and that God was going to destroy them because of it. The kingdom of Israel fell to Assyria in 722 B.C., and Judah believed that they were being faithful to God, and so as a result, God had spared them this same fate. But Isaiah and other prophets, too, had to tell them that they were going to suffer a similar fate at the hands of Babylon. They had to tell them to turn from the evil that they were doing because God wasn't going to spare them forever. They had to stop worshiping false gods on the high places. They had to seek justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. Isaiah is called by God to speak words of conviction to God's people And as we all well know, people tend to get themselves in a tizzy, don't they? They get themselves worked up into an uproar when words of conviction are spoken to them. I mean, tell a friend that something they're doing is wrong and watch how long they stay your friend. Tell a nation that the way they are living is wrong and watch how quickly they will turn from you. Yes, God gave Isaiah words of conviction to speak for him, but he also gave him words of compassion. And it was those words of compassion that pointed to the magnificent future that God held in store for his people. You see, God had made a covenant with Israel, and God always keeps his covenant. God always keeps his promises. And so even though there would be judgment because of Judah's sin and rejection of God, this judgment wasn't going to last forever. Yes, 
Judah as a nation would fall and the people would be carried off in captivity to a foreign nation called Babylon. And yet still, God would keep his promise to Israel. One day, God would bring them home again to the land that he had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaiah 14, 1 and 2 says, The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. And Israel will take possession of the nations and make them, make them male and female servants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. God has made promises to Israel, and God will keep those promises. And we too, as Christians, are beneficiaries of God's promises because we have been grafted into Israel through Jesus Christ. And so even when the world around us seems like it's crazy, when it's turned upside down, when it's falling apart, we can lift our eyes like Isaiah did and see a vision of the future that points to the day when God's promises are coming true in all of their fullness when God will make all things right again. Listen to what that future holds in store. This is God's promise from Isaiah chapter 11. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. My friends, this is a picture of creation the way God intended it to be. This is a picture of Eden. There is a day coming in our future, the Lord says, when all of nature, including humanity, will live in harmony with everything else. Now, I can assure you that today, I would never let my little granddaughter, Charlotte, put her hand near a rattlesnake. But this promise tells me that a day is coming when that will be okay. And perhaps even more wonderful, there is a day coming when human division will end, when racial harmony will be a real thing, when nation will not go to war against nation anymore, when all of the stuff that divides us now will stop and we will all proclaim the glory of the Lord. We'll all have knowledge of the Lord. We'll see it together. Does that sound good to you? It should sound good to you. I'm sure it does sound good to you. And do you know why? Because God created us for that world. Yeah, we messed it up in the fall and by disobeying God, but that doesn't change the fact that we were made to live in harmony with God and in harmony with each other. 
Too many people, I think, look around the world today and they feel that the fear that the world that they see is as good as it's ever going to get. We look around us and we see war and disease and hunger and strife and division. And we think that it's always going to be this way. Sometimes we lose hope. Sometimes we despair that it's ever going to get any better. I think we need to be reminded of Isaiah. We need a healthy dose of the hopeful future that Isaiah casts for us. Because for the Christian, this is not as good as it gets. No, this is as bad as it gets. Scripture tells us that there is a better day coming. That is God's promise. And in the meantime, until that day comes, God calls us to keep trusting. He calls us to stay faithful. He calls us to keep looking to that future that is in store. Because God says a day is coming when there will be no more tears. There will be no more crying. There will be no more disease. There will be no more death. We can lift up our eyes just like Isaiah and see a great future. Isaiah, in his vision, saw a great God. And he saw a great future. But perhaps the most amazing gift that Isaiah gives to us is the vision that he had of a great Savior. You see, the messianic prophecies in Isaiah are so beautiful, found nowhere else. No other prophet paints such a beautiful, poetic picture of Jesus. 800 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah saw a great Savior. Listen to this beautiful passage from Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our message And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that, was, that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished." He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus suffered for the sins of all humankind. This prophecy is so profound, and it is so precise to what happened 
Who could believe that God would choose a suffering servant like Jesus to save the world, to save me, to save you from our sin? We rejected him. We despised him. We turned away from him, but he never rejected us. He never despised us. He never turned away from us. Instead, he spread out his arms on that cross as if to embrace all of the sin that had ever separated us from God's holiness. He was crucified, and by the blood that he shed, by his blood, our wounds, the wounds of our sin, were healed. And then his outstretched arms were able to gather us all together and embrace us in the love of God. This is the Savior that Isaiah saw. This is the Savior that Isaiah points us to. And so no matter what big problem you're going through today, I don't know what it is, but we all have something. It might be the failure of something that you were absolutely counting on. Or maybe something in your life has taken an unexpected turn for the worse. Maybe you're worried about your kids or your spouse seems more distant than they once did or the world is changing too fast. Maybe it's our country, our world. I don't know. You name it. Like Isaiah, look to your Savior. For we have a great God who is far greater than any problem we can ever face. And we have a great future because God is faithful and because God keeps his promises. And we have a great Savior. So reach out to him today. Give him your sin. Give him your doubt. Give him your fear. Give him your life. Surrender to him. And let him embrace you with his love. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we are not unlike your people from long ago. Each of us have turned to our own selfish ways and we have forsaken you, but you have never forsaken us. Thank you for calling prophets like Isaiah and many others through the ages, ages who continually call us back to faithfulness in you. Thank you for the words of Isaiah and for reminding us this day with words that we can hold on to that you are a great God and you are greater than any problem we face. That you have promised a great future in store that we catch a glimpse of now but one day will come in all of its fullness. And that you've given us a great Savior in Jesus Christ to take our sin upon himself to redeem us, to break every chain, every bondage so that we can live free in that future you hold from us. Let us claim it for ourselves today and lay our sin at the foot of the cross so that we can leave from this place free to tell others how great you are, how good your future is, and how great a Savior we've come to know. We pray in his name, the name above all names, the only name, Jesus. Amen.